everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inclusive Conversations. Today, Tanya and I are going to chat with Joe York, who is actually one quarter of Manifold. He is a founding partner of our platform for inclusive design. Joe has had an extensive career at Visa working in a few different capacities, but namely in product management, product development, design, and innovation. And he brought this unique background to the mix of our cohort at graduate school, where really he was the first person to apply inclusive design to the financial realm. Joe's work is all about financial wellness. His research is super interesting. It asks the question, can credit cards actually promote financial well-being? This research dwells at the intersection of the capitalist construct, consumer psychology, and emotional well-being. I mean, these are such dynamic and powerful areas that it really motivated us to dig deeper into Joe himself. We wanted to know more about his own journey of moving from finance to design and to understand how he merges these seemingly unrelated worlds together because when you hear finance you don't typically think it has anything to do with design but through this conversation I think you'll learn just how much it actually does have to do with design. So we rang him up on the phone and we had a conversation. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi. Having a good day? So far, so good. We got a holiday in the US, Veterans Day, so no work. It's a good day. That's a good day. That's a good Mm -hmm. day. Okay, so we are calling because we've got some questions that we want to ask you about financial inclusion. We want to pick your brain and we want to know more about your world. Okay. Okay. I'll do my best. Great. So first question is how in the world did you get into your finance career? Mm. Uh, By accident, for sure. By accident. Um, I uh, went to university as a a graphic design major and um, I also thought I was going to play basketball at university, I thought that uh, it was also a religious school. There was like a bunch of reasons that I thought this whole path was a good idea at the time. And then kind of one by one, each of those things turned out not to be uh, for me at that moment in time. I wasn't as good at basketball as I thought I was. Uh, The religious part of the school wasn't as good a fit as I thought it might be. Um, I was there on a scholarship for uh, leadership that came with a GPA requirement. And I was not as smart as I thought I was either. I thought I didn't have to study. Turns out I did need to study. So anyway, I just kind of washed out of all of that. Um, and I ended up taking a year off of school. And then I the kind of pendulum swung to the other extreme. I, was, I went from all of these things that, um, had been really exciting and maybe personal passions. I went to the other extreme of what are all the safest things I could possibly do. I've always been good at math. 
So, and I have a friend, uh, I had a friend that was studying finance and his dad was a CFO. And so they were in my ear talking to me about how, you know, you can do whatever you want outside of work, but if you just follow this 10 step plan with finance, you can have a good job and you'll make a lot of money and you'll be able to have a family and it'll be great. So I drank the Kool-Aid. I transferred to a school closer to home and uh, I did exactly what they said. I got good grades. I uh, got an internship at Visa and then that turned into a full-time job after school uh, at Visa. And that kind of set me on one trajectory. Um, I would say since then, I've kind of been working in a circle to get back to that more passion-driven relationship with work and the world in general. Um, but it's taken, it's taken a long time to get that, to get that far. And you've been at Visa for like 10 years? Coming up on, coming up on nine now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I want to talk about how you're journeying back. So, uh, even though finance and inclusive design seems so opposite, you're coming Mm. back to design like you said, mm-hmm. for, for your, to your passion again. Could you talk more about that? Uh, they do seem opposite, um, but I actually think that maybe more than any other place where you could apply inclusive design, finance, in my very biased opinion, might be one of the most impactful. Um, the thing that I, that I, you know, even as I've changed a lot over the last nine years uh, of working in this field, um, the thing that I haven't been able to let go of is that there's not really, at least in the US, but I suspect it's true in Canada and Mexico and lots of other countries that have, um, you know, where uh, society is really matured and the economies are mature. There's not really that many parts of life that don't have something to do with money that aren't driven in some significant way by money. Like if you think about art, an idealistic uh, view of art as practice is that it's all about the creative process and inspiration and expression. But like specifically what determines what is made 90% of the time is what will people pay for. Um, And so the the influence of money is everywhere in a field in which you wouldn't think Um, religion I, my dad was a minister when I was growing up. Uh, well, he still is too. But um, in the in the Christian church, you would think that's just about like people's relationship with God or some or people's relationship with each other. I know firsthand a lot of times they're kind of like businesses. It's like how do you get more people to go to the church so that they'll tithe so that the church can grow and then more people will come to that church and tithe even more. I mean, it's the same kind of cycle where money is at the core of things. Uh, education, you know, what determines the quality of your education and your access to education? It's either where you live and the schools that you have access to based on where you live, or do you have enough money to buy to go to a private school and ensure uh, a certain quality of education that way? So finance seems like it's just about like stocks and bonds and savings accounts or whatever. But in actuality, I think that if you're just looking at money, it kind of flows everywhere. Um, and I, I had a lot of really formative experiences early in life where money was um, 
left a, a really big impression. I would say my family, when I was growing up, we were kind of right on the edge between the middle class and the lower class. And so um, my dad was in seminary, like school to be a minister in the church when I uh, uh, was born. And then when I was five, we moved to help plant a church uh, in another state. And so my parents were really scrappy. You know, they're spending uh, dozens of hours each week at the church trying to work for free to get that, uh, you know, up and going and growing. And at the same time, they were working at a grocery store. They would sing at corporate events. They're both musical. So they would perform musically at corporate events. They would help out at, uh, my dad's pretty handy. So he had like a little carpentry thing. So they're just scrappy and they were all over the place trying to just make ends meet. And at the same time I was homeschooled. So I would go to baseball practice and I would feel like, okay, I'm not the same as you all. Something's different. I feel left out. Uh, and the only things I could see that were different about me versus somebody else were like, what kind of clothes did you have? What kind of car did your parents drive? Uh, what kind of baseball mitt did you have? So I got really good at understanding like, what is the surface level difference between this person and me? And then eventually I ended up going to high school and public university. And again, like I was trying to figure out how do I fit in? And the only things I could really understand at that point in time were just clothes and cars and, uh, you know, the way people talked about things and where did you go out to eat? And uh, did you have braces yet? <laughs> so I just, uh, it, to me, like the question of what is who gets included and excluded for as long as I've been alive has been about money. You know, do, do you have enough money to make yourself fit in? And I, I know that's a simplified way of looking at things, but that is when I started, um, you know, looking at inclusive design, that was kind of the, the thing that I grabbed onto is money is kind of the prime determinant as far as I can see about who gets included in the circle and who gets left out of the circle. I, I see how that covers perfectly well, the inclusive part, but I still, I'm still thinking about the designer in you and why you chose that skill to pursue it again or that tool. It seems mm -hmm. like you are very, like you were saying, like very sensible and observing things. Is that it or why go back to design? Yeah, I mean, when I, uh, I've always liked design. If you go back and look at my notebooks from when I was a kid, uh, they're just all shoes, basketball shoes. I just liked drawing shoes, probably because I saw them on some other kid's foot and I was figuring, trying to figure out how do I get those shoes? They look so cool. He seems so cool. I want to be like that. Um, so then I would just draw them in my notebook. Um, and I also was like an obsessive interior designer of my bedroom as a child. Uh, we would, we moved a lot. We moved probably, probably lived in six or seven different houses growing up. And every time I had like a piece of paper, grid paper, I would measure with the tape measure, the dimensions of the room. I would like open up my Ikea catalog. because that was like the cheap furniture that we could get and figure out like, okay, so what do I put here? What do I, I cut out the little pieces of paper based on how big the table was or the bed was and like organize them around the room. Every six months I would re lay out the room uh, and change my color scheme. I painted 
so many different bedrooms. So I, I've always liked that stuff. Um, and so I think uh, it felt natural. You know, I was trying to find a way I, I um, this is not my idea, but I think there's a Japanese concept of your vocation or your calling is the balancing of what are you, what are you capable of? What skills do you have? What are you interested in? And what does the world need? And so I, uh, in terms of what I'm interested in, design has always been a part of that. Um, what skills do I have? I spent, you know, even before studying inclusive design formally, I had six or seven years of work in finance. So that's what I had to bring to the table. And then, um, you know, what does the world need? I, I don't think it's hard to, for, for anybody to see that we have problems of people being excluded um, at kind of the margins of society. So uh, it felt like kind of the right triangulation of all those factors. Okay. That's um, super insightful into who you are. I feel like I knew parts of that, but I did not know a lot of that. Um, Maybe we saw his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the easy one to see, yeah. <laughs> so in your career, like your nine-year career so far, that kind of brought you to meeting us in graduate school. Like, was mm -hmm. there a specific moment or project that you were working on or something that was like the catalyst for you to like dig deeper into financial inclusion through this or financial inclusion slash financial exclusion through this program? Like how did hmm. you, what was that spark? Um, yeah, I mean, Visa, I think is very interested in financial inclusion. Um, financial inclusion as defined, uh, financial inclusion meaning either people who are underbanked or unbanked, unbanked meaning they don't have a bank account or underbanked meaning maybe they do have a bank account, but they're using alternative financial service providers for some part of their financial life. So let's say you have a bank account, but you use a check cashing service or payday loans um, to make your uh, financial world work. Um, so Visa is very interested in that. Um, and it is a good thing. I think that's part of the you know, the ladder towards um, building more, a more financially equitable future. That's kind of the first piece of it is like, who gets to sit at the table? Um, so that word was definitely floating around um, a few years ago, uh, as I was at Visa and trying to figure out what I wanted to pursue further. Um, I didn't know much about about the nuances of that topic or like what comes next after somebody has a bank account. I just liked the way it sounded, I would say, generally. <laughs> Inclusion, that sounds good and noble uh, and finance or financial, uh, th that's a word that I should know something about. I have a degree in it and some work experience. So I started kind of digging around that and um, just searching online for programs that had something I kind of thought finance, that seems like a good um, thing to grab a hold of inclusion, financial inclusion. I'm hearing that word thrown around at work design. I know I like that. So let me find a program um, that would allow me to pursue some of that more deeply. Once I got into grad school, I would say that 
focus on that specific topic started slipping away. <laughs> I, I think what started to become more interesting to me is just why, why are people excluded? Why, are, why do some people not have um, bank accounts or maybe they have a bank account, but they have to go other places um, for other financial services? And then what comes next? Like why just getting a bank account is not solving any of your problems, or maybe it's solving a few, but it's not solving all of them. Um, what comes next? And so that became kind of the next step in my exploration of financial inclusion as a, a lane. So I'm just going to dig a little deeper, Tanya, into the MRP because I think this is a point. In the research that you did, which is available for anybody to browse on our website, hellomatical.com, <laughs> like, what did you find um, was the biggest problem area? And did you, like, who was affected the most? And did you see anything that could be done to improve financial inclusion? Mm. Yeah, uh, picking, picking up on what I was saying um, just a second ago, I, I, my point of origination in the program was thinking, what does it mean to, um, I, I was focused on financial inclusion. So I was thinking like, how do we get more people access to bank accounts? Or could I come up with some cool app that would help people who don't have much money get better at saving or budgeting or something? When I started looking at that more closely, what I found is um, there are all types of exclusion as it relates to finances. And I think that's part of what's fascinating about it. Going back to the earlier comments about what part of our lives today doesn't have some sort of financial consideration. Right. When you look at the world that way, there's stuff that should change to include more people and also include more of people uh, all over the place. So it's not just a matter of how do we get more people bank accounts, but when we design uh, banking products or credit cards or mortgages, people's relationships with money are not purely rational. Right. If you go out and you ask 10 people about, you know, what, how they make decisions about how they spend or save, the majority of the stuff you get back is going to be about, I feel anxious. I feel nervous. I feel overwhelmed. Uh, maybe somebody will say they feel at peace with their money, but I mean, they're emotional words, they're feeling words. They're as somebody who's a, a big fanboy of therapy. There were words that were more familiar to, familiar to me from that context than from the context of academic uh, finance, you know, academic discourse around finance. Yeah. So as I, and, and that is more of what my evolution with money has in, involved. Like I, my parents sacrificed for me so that I could go to college so that I could have a good job. I've always had a good salary. I'm not good with money. <laughs> and it's not because I don't understand the technical concepts. It's not because I don't have enough money coming in. It's because I have put a lot of meaning on money that doesn't belong there. I still, there's a part of me that's still the nine-year-old boy who thinks if I have that shoe, that pair of shoes or that shirt, 
then the person that I meet at the grocery store is going to like me better. And so I make decisions with my money that are not rational and don't benefit me and don't make me feel more at peace with my money. They make me feel anxious, nervous, overwhelmed. Um, And so I, I got pretty fascinated about, you know, what would it look like if your bank or whatever company you're going to, to help you with your finances, what if they took into account more of our personhood? If it wasn't just about, you know, the specifics of, you know, how much money do you have in your bank account? Uh, have you paid off your debt in the past? You know, uh, how, what are your expenses? You know, what if it was also about your disposition as a person, the places where you have, you know, where your fears lie, how does that influence the way you make decisions? I think that there's a lot of opportunity there and it's relatively underexplored. And so that's really what I found fueling as I, um, got further into the research process. I ended up finding this whole profession called money coaching, um, where it's these people who kind of straddle the line between a bookkeeper or an accountant and your therapist. So they, they want you to get to a place where you feel at peace with your money. And oftentimes it's not, um, solely about, you know, accounting and looking at money coming in, money going out. A lot of times their work goes into, you know, what did you observe your parents do with their money? What example did that set for you? Um, my, my favorite story from one of the interviews was, uh, the, one of the money coaches was working with a couple and they were trying, they, they weren't doing, they, they, they were not financially healthy. They had uh, growing debt and they were trying to figure out the path out of their situation. And so he started working with them on putting together a budget and, um, they initially, like, as he was looking backwards at their money, he noticed they were spending so much money on going out to eat. And so he starts asking, you know, why, why are you doing that? Um, and as they go back and forth and talk about that, it becomes clear that, um, food in their specific context growing up the way that they grew up, uh, it was like this oppressive, uh, not, you know, not really healthy relationship that they had with food. And so they got so much joy from going out and having the experience of being out and celebrating and being with other people and eating good food and breaking bread with friends or other people they cared about, that it was like one of the primary joys in life for them. So this money coach's response was not, you need to slash that. It was instead, there is financial reality. So if you're going to do that, you can't go out to the movies as much as you've been going out, or you need to maybe get a cheaper car or whatever, but let's keep the money allocated for going out to eat, but let's make sure that you're going out to eat to celebrate, like make sure that the thing that you're spending money on is something that actually really brings you joy. And it's a party every time you're not just going across the street to get noodles because you're being lazy about making food, make it, you know, really embrace what it means to you. So that's what these money coaches are doing is kind of coming up with personalized financial plans that incorporate more of who we are as human beings. It's not just purely rational. It's not just black and white. It is all of the gray that's in all of us. And I think that if we took more of that way of thinking and way of seeing the world and way of managing our money and your bank 
or um, you know your budgeting software or pick whoever the partner is, if they were designing with more of that in mind, you would end up with a more inclusive experience. It's not financial inclusion in the sense of taking people who don't have money today and giving them um, a some sort of leg up, but it is taking uh, more of the people who are already in the banking system into account as you design the experience. I love this. I love this rela emotional relationship that you're trying to understand with money. Mm. Would you say this is what you are trying to uncover in this journey in the financial inclusion? Or is there something else? And going into deeper that, what, what do you ex expect to find? Yeah, I think that's, this is the piece, the piece that I explored in the, in the research, which, uh, as Zoya said, is on the website. Um, the, that's the thing that I think is landed closest to home for me, because it's my experience. I, I, I'm not talking about those problems from the outside looking in. I'm talking about them from inside. <laughs> uh, and so I, there's something about that that feels um, particularly true. But as I said, I think, I guess the, the thing that gets me excited most is the idea of taking the inclusive designers toolkit, you know, the idea of taking people who are not normally included in the design process and putting them at the center and giving them the tools to co-create the things they need. Um, applying that to the financial world. And there's all sorts of exclusion that you can start to get at if you see things that way, if you start looking at things that way. Everything from, uh, I would say, the you know banks and uh, financial institutions um, are as bad as anybody else at accessibility. Um, so there's a ton of work that needs to be done in terms of uh, physical... Uh, in inclusion in terms of physical ability, cognitive ability, um, and a kind of an accessibility, just table stakes. How do you, how do you include those people in the, in the experience and give them access to the tools? Um, there are, uh, problems, systemic problems, uh, in the U S we have a long history of racial discrimination. Our entire country was built off of slavery as an institution. And the echoes of that play out in the financial world, uh, even today. Um, there are way fewer Black-owned banks that operate and are focused on the Black community than there are um, Black people in our country. And the reason for that is because uh, banks are built off of the idea that you can have people that deposit money that then the bank is going to lend out at a higher rate. So they make money on the difference between the deposit money that goes in and the money they lend out at, a, at an interest rate. Well, if you have a whole community of people who generation after generation have been uh, by design left behind by our economy, then it makes sense that if you tried to build a bank based off of those people's finances, people who don't have much money to deposit and who don't have much history borrowing and repaying, the financial institutions, the banks themselves are set up um, to fail, and they have uh, oftentimes in our country. So there's problems that exist at that level. There's problems uh, of accessibility. There's problems of 
emotional inclusion, like what we were talking about before. There are problems of, um, you know, financial education and cultural representation. All, you know, banks come from white culture. So the language and the, the education that is available is largely based off of the white experience, uh, you know, language that's familiar to me in the way that I grew up imagery um, that is familiar to me and looks like me, but uh, that is representative at this point of like 40% of the US population. What about the other 60%? Um, you know, what, are, what does it look like to have financial education and marketing materials and um, imagery and visual representation that is reflective of more people's experience? It's kind of endless. I mean, that's just, those are big buckets. There's even more um, and I'm interested in kind of all of them, which is part of the problem. I have to keep focused because if you're trying to uh, tackle all those things, you're going to, it's not going to work. But um, I, I am kind of endlessly fascinated by all of it. Okay, that was a lot of really rich information. It's a lot to like everyone to like go look up and just educate themselves more and um, it's fascinating. My last question is a little bit more about you. I want to know what is this journey of becoming an inclusive designer reveal the most to you? One about yourself and two about others. Mm. You guys really should have sent the questions in advance. <laughs> No um, no, no. <laughs> I mean, the question for, for me is, is easier to answer. Like you've heard it in some of my other comments, but um, so much of why I care about the topic and care about inclusive design as practice is stuff that's just, you know, still healed, still healing wounds from when I was a kid. Um, and so I think the further I get into it, the more I understand about um, ways in which, you know, something I didn't have control over as an eight-year-old inform who I am today and the way that I see the world. Um, and so that includes just the general, you know, on paper, I'm the most included person in the world. <laughs> I'm a guy, I'm straight, I'm white. Uh, I have a body that works well and a mind that's still working right now. Uh, I'm Christian. <laughs> There's just, I mean, you couldn't, I can't find another box to tick uh, in terms of um, aligning myself with dominant culture. And yet I still have this prevailing sense of being left out, of being excluded. And it goes back to memories from eight, nine, 10, 15 years old and feeling like I don't, I don't belong here. I don't fit in. Um, so I think um, inclusive design to me has, has kind of, I was already pretty deep into the work of trying to understand how those things from uh, my past influence who I am today. Um, but I guess it's another layer of self-reflection and self-examination to say, Oh, even the things that I'm interested in or passionate about, the things that I that I find driving me, even as I become more healthy as a person, I can't put, I can't let go 
of these these things that make me who I am. Um, and I guess that, I mean, that is also true of how it informs my understanding of others that, um, that everybody, I don't care who you are, has those same set of insecurities about whether they're going to be in or out. And it doesn't matter if you had money or not, if uh, you were part of a racial majority or minority, if you have, your people have lived in a country for a long time, or they've just gotten here recently we all have that same need for belonging. And um, so we call it inclusive design or designing for equity or designing for belonging as if it is a like distinct thing that is focused on the lived experiences of a particular type of people. But I see it as more of a general way of uh, viewing the world that is applicable to everyone because everyone has that same experience of being six years old, walking into first grade for the first time and wondering, Am I going to fit in or not? That was beautiful. It was. I'm really it's... glad that we know you. Yes. <laughs> well, you told me to bring my whimsy. So I didn't talk about interest rates or uh, credit <laughs> scores or anything technical. That's another episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One to okay. put people to sleep. <laughs> I really, really, really enjoyed this. Inclusive Conversations is produced by Manifold, an inclusive design consultancy that connects mission-driven researchers and designers to projects that drive positive social impact. This podcast is our space for safe, unique, and diverse conversations with people striving for more inclusion in the world. If you'd like to find out more about us or any of the creative projects mentioned in this episode, visit us at hellomanifold.com.